Our scripture reading this morning is from Genesis chapter 50, verse 19. Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Good morning. I'd like to take a moment to add my word of welcome to everyone here this morning and especially to our visitors. We're thankful for your presence. I want you to know that here at Westside, it is our goal to help each other to find our way to heaven. And for that, the Bible is at our map and blueprint, and we seek no other source to find that. And so, should you hear something this morning that comes out of my mouth or indeed out of anyone's mouth, that you find to be in error with what you've read in the Bible, please approach us, let's talk about it, let's sit down, and let's find the answers together because we only want to help each other to find our way into heaven. I'd like to add a word of thanks to the elders for giving me this opportunity and for all of you for your patience. The sermon this morning comes to me by way of my father-in-law's vault by a preacher, a gospel preacher by the name of Bobby Thompson, who some of you who are maybe a little older have perhaps heard of. He was a gospel preacher for almost 75 years, and so the credit for the sermon outline mostly goes to him, while the blame goes to my father-in-law for leaving it where I could find it. And also, for the avoidance of doubt, in case any of you are wondering, I did not engage the services of my extremely talented wife for this slide. So, uh, just in case you were wondering, this was definitely not her fault. So in the book of Genesis, the tale of Joseph is a rather famous one. The tale of wickedness and jealousy that are visited upon Joseph by his brothers is, in many cases, one of the first stories that we teach to children, especially to those with siblings. And there's a lot that we can learn from the story of Joseph, about human nature, about faith and forgiveness, and about God's willingness to put the least of people in extraordinary circumstances and then rewarding them for their dedication. Today... I'd like to use the story of Joseph to illustrate what it means to put ourselves in the place of God. In Genesis chapter 50, late in the story, Joseph is at the height of his power. He sits as a respected advisor to the Pharaoh, and he was so respected that despite his humble beginnings as a prisoner, when his father Jacob died, not only did the Pharaoh give Joseph leave to go and bury his father in the land of Canaan, he sent a royal entourage, a massive entourage to accompany him, which basically afforded Jacob something kind of like a state funeral that might have only been reserved for perhaps the highest level of dignitaries. The Pharaoh paid Joseph, and by extension Jacob, a very great honor in doing this. Now once Jacob had passed away, Joseph's brothers threw themselves upon his mercy. The brothers did not expect that he could possibly forgive them for everything that they had done, In Genesis chapter 50 and verse 15, they said, Joseph will surely hate us and repay us all the evil which we did unto him. Now, the brothers were very recognizant of their actions, and so when they approached him, they kind of did it very meekly with their hats in their hand, as it were. And they were so concerned that they even appealed to the memory of their father Jacob when they spoke to him. Now, Joseph was genuinely touched, and he openly wept at their begging. In verse 19, he said, Do not be afraid, for I am in the place of God. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, 
in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. He was saying that whatever the brothers did to him, whatever they thought the outcome was going to be, and whatever was going to be going to result from this, God was able to use those moments to bring about events that would eventually lead to the creation of the 12 tribes of Israel. So what did Joseph mean when he said the statement, I am in the place of God? It meant that Joseph was in a position where he could enact vengeance if he so desired. He could have brought down the entire might of Egypt on his brother's heads if that was what he had wished. But Joseph understood, however, that though he had the power to enact vengeance, he didn't have the prerogative. He recognized that that authority rested with God alone. In the book of Hebrews, book of Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10 in verses 30 and 31, the author quotes back to the book of Deuteronomy saying, for we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his own people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. This last statement, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, is both understated and very powerful because we all must stand in judgment one day and there won't be any escape from it. The Apostle Paul drives this home later with the Romans when he's teaching them about how to conduct themselves as Christians. In the book of Romans, book of Romans chapter 12, In Romans chapter 12 and verse 19, Paul says, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Now the English Standard Version, the, instead of saying give place to wrath, says leave it to the wrath of God. We're to leave things to let God be the total arbiter of what is to happen. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shares that not only is it important for us to, seek Vincent, ven, to not seek vengeance, but he also offers the counterpoint that we should instead forgive. In Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6 and verse, four, starting in verse 14, he says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It is, after all, I think, a highly regarded ideal of Christianity that we live peaceably with our neighbors. We don't necessarily have to agree with them, but we do have to understand that God will be the one that judges them in the end. Another way that we try to put ourselves in the place of God is by establishing our own salvations. There have been many in the last 2,000 years that have taken the gospel and tried to alter it for their own gain and glory. In Galatians chapter 1, Galatians chapter 1, in verses 6 through 9, we read as Paul lectures the Galatians about straying from the word and following false doctrines. Now, the Galatians were mixed up with some Jewish Christians who were hung up on the old ways and thought that salvation was really more of a gift, or it was less a gift and more of a reward for service. Paul says, I marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another. But there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, 
preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, and so now I say again, if anyone preaches another gospel to you than what we have received, let him be accursed. Paul's very aggressive and specific on this point. And he's very specific about the preferred outcome, and for good reason. To a different gospel, which is not another, he's pointing out that this, isn't, this other gospel isn't a gospel at all. When he mentions that even if one of the disciples or an angel preaches a false doctrine, that it should be ignored, that should illustrate how, just how important the gospel is. Paul is saying that it's bigger than any of them, and it's bigger than any of the angels. As he said, as we have said before, so now I say again, in modern doctrine we might say, for those of you who weren't listening the first time, let me repeat myself. None of us on earth have the power to add or take away from the gospel. And the chiefest of offenders to false doctrine was himself a fallen angel. We know him better as Satan. It only takes one little deviation to create a crack in our face. Folks, this is why we must study our Bibles. This is why we must study relentlessly and continually. If you don't have a Bible, I urge you to go find a sound translation and keep it close to you. Study it every day. You don't have to spend the whole day deep diving in it, although there's nothing wrong with doing that and certainly a great deal to be gained, I think. Just take a chapter or two a day. Read it. Meditate on it. Figure out how it applies to your life. If we keep the word always close to our hearts, it makes it that much easier for us to defend against false doctrine. The Apostle John also drives this reality home in his second letter. Now, his second letter is short, but it's impactful. He discusses the importance of following God, obeying Christ fully, and in the context of the sermon, driving away false preachers. There are many teachers in John's day that believe that the spirit was good, but that all matter was evil, and as a result, there is no way that Christ could be both the Son of God and a man. In 2 John chapter 1, Second John chapter 1, in verse 7, he says, For many deceivers, <clears throat> excuse me, for many deceivers have gone out into the world who do not confess Christ, Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is a deceiver and antichrist. Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things that we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. And in verse 9, he goes on to say, Whoever transgresses and does not abide by the doctrine of Christ does not have God. He who abides in the doctrine of Christ has both the Father and the Son. In the context of this letter, he's begging the woman and her family not to throw away the gospel they've worked so hard to follow in favor of some lesser path. One of the other ways we put ourselves in the position of God is by divorcing and remarrying at one's own discretion. A stat that we often hear quoted in the media is that 50% of marriages today end in divorce. Now, the statistic is a little bit outdated, and the American Psychology Association says that today the odds of a first marriage ending divorce are anywhere from 40% to 50%. I wish I could say that decline is comforting, but when you compare this to the U.S. Census data that shows that the rate of people getting married has been in steady decline since 2011, the truth of the matter is that number really hasn't decreased as much as we'd probably like. And the APA's findings get worse, actually. A 
Of those who divorce and remarry, they're nearly a third again as likely to reoffend and divorce again, 67%. If you're lucky enough to make it to your third marriage, guess what? You have a 73% chance of divorcing yet again. I can't speak for abroad, but here in the United States, we have absolutely turned divorce into a national pastime. There are people in social media who speak with pride of their divorces, and they openly encourage others to defile the sanctity of their marriages and to put themselves first. And while everyone else is looking the other way, the Bible makes it pretty clear that there are only two things that would allow someone to remarry, and only one of those is a cause for divorce. In Romans chapter 7, In Romans chapter 7, Paul is sharing the law with the Romans on when it's acceptable to remarry. Starting in verse 1, we read, Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband who is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law of her husband. So then, if, her husband, if while her husband lives, she remarries another man, he, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. He's making it clear <clears throat> that the bondage of marriage was one that was intended for life. When one dies, then the other is freed from that bond. And he drives home the point, comparing it to our faith also in verse 4, comparing our relationship with Christ as our second marriage after the death of our marriage to the world. Jesus himself very plainly states that there's only one lawful reason for divorcing one spouse. First, that it's serving on the mount, over in Matthew chapter 5. <clears throat> in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 32, he says, I say to you that whoever divorces his wife for any reason except sexual immorality causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now he repeats the same statement later in Matthew 19, in verse 9, but a little later, look, excuse me, a little earlier in Matthew 19, starting in verse 4, he says, Have you not read that he who made them in the beginning made them male and female, and that for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that they are no longer two, but one flesh? Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, there's no wiggle room for interpretation here. There's no parable to go along with this one. He's being laser-specific. Jesus says that marriage is a covenant with God, what God has joined together, that mankind does not have the authority to countermand that. Let not man separate. We'll stop. Paul adds on to this when he's talking to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, First Corinthians chapter 7, in verses 10 through 11, Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband, but even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and a husband is not to divorce his wife. Paul is ready to concede that tempers are going to flare from time to time and will sometimes get the best of us. If a situation were to go beyond tenability, where a separation were warranted, it should be with an eye towards reconciliation 
and the spouses should pri- excuse me, strive to preserve that sacred bond with God because irreconcilable differences does not constitute a reason for divorce. Now, some of us might take a little longer to reach this realization than others, and I count myself amongst that number. But marriage is a treasure handed down by God, and we should treat it as such. It's a mirror, ultimately. And it should come as no surprise that our relationship with God should reflect our relationship with our spouses, and vice versa, our relationship with our spouses should reflect our relationship with God. I saved the biggest one for last. Maybe one of the biggest ways that we place ourselves in the position of God is by being authoritative. That's somewhat related to some of the earlier stuff we talked about, but maybe one of the most popular ways we put ourselves in the place of God today is by claiming spiritual authority. The lure of power and special consideration by our fellow men has been a strong driver for people for nearly as long as the church has existed. Now, the easy ones to spot are the televangelists, those who would offer up hokey miracles or those who strive to make people believe that having a warm, happy feeling about yourself is the true path to God. Probably more commonly, and I would argue much more popularly, are the ones that claim to believe in the authority of the Bible, but then proceed to wrap the word and contrive doctrines, <clears throat> excuse me, doctrines that are entirely the construct of man. Chief examples of this might be the Catholic Church and its subsidiaries, or the Southern Baptist Convention. One human being, or a few such human beings, making decisions regarding all who would subscribe to that doctrinal system of belief and telling them what to believe. They take stances on doctrinal matters such as baptism and how to conduct it, divorce and remarriage, as we saw earlier, or even topics such as abortion, or who has the authority to teach the gospel, or even the gay and lesbian community. All these people try to worship God, but they've all found a way to insert man into the grand scheme of things and to make sure he gets his cut instead of giving the glory to God. Probably the hardest among this number to spot are hidden in our own brethren. Ladies and gentlemen, the Church of Christ is not above this dilemma. Institutionalism is rife amongst many congregations. Fellowship halls, gymnasiums, church-sponsored activities, donations to causes all in the name of the church, all of these and more challenge us, especially when we travel abroad and we have to make the effort to search for a sound congregation to visit where Bible truth is preached holy. It's a challenge and a reminder to us that Satan is ever abroad and he seeks to direct us off the path of the righteousness of Christ. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. In Matthew chapter 28, starting in verse 18, Jesus says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. Who has authority? All authority has been given to me, he said, in heaven and earth. These are absolutes with no exceptions. All the Old Testament prophecies, as well as the genealogies we see in the book of Matthew and Luke, work to establish Jesus' credentials and his right to divine authority. 
In fact, we might go so far as to call the Old Testament the ultimate character reference for Jesus. He doesn't stop there, though. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, not the doctrines you want to make for yourself, not the self-made spiritual loopholes that you want to marry to the word, observe all things that I have commanded you. In Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 and verse 7, excuse me, 17. Colossians chapter 3 and verse 17, Paul reminds the Colossians that the glory should always go to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. It's a reminder to us that we are representatives of Christ 24-7. Our actions should reflect that always. Do people have a good impression of Christ and his teachings when the people observe our words and actions? Or do they see the actions of an authoritative individual taking liberties with the established precepts of Christ? What's that lyric from the song, The World's Bible? We're the only Bible the careless world will ever read. Not everyone that we meet in our day-to-day lives is ever going to read the Bible, but they will witness our actions and hear our words. God's authority and wisdom should speak to them through those outlets, if nothing else. Preaching the authority of Christ is a challenging endeavor. In Titus chapter 2, Titus chapter 2 and verse 15, we read, Speak these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one despise you. Now, most of chapter 2 is spent identifying what it means to live rightly in the church, identifying the standards for a behavior for all the different demographics that we have. Paul's saying that it's not enough for us to just live the scriptures, though. We must also teach them. It isn't just about us. We cannot be afraid to encourage, teach, and correct others when it's necessary. It's easy for us to feel afraid when there are others who are older, more influential, excuse me, more influential in the community, and perhaps wealthier. And I can confess to you now, me, standing up here today, I feel afraid. When there are so many people I know in this congregation that I look up to as being more knowledgeable than myself, it can be intimidating. And this is what we would call a nurturing or encouraging environment. What if this environment were more hostile? What if there was someone who is actively trying to refute the message that I'm up here preaching? How do we respond in those moments? I think much like Titus, we shouldn't let ourselves be threatened when we're trying to minister or to help provide leadership to the church. This doesn't mean that we shouldn't be open to feedback, and I think those who want to give feedback should look to do so in a constructive manner, but it does not mean that we should not feel afraid to step up when we know something is wrong. Maybe, in the end, for us, being in the place of God comes down to understanding the difference between what is possible and what is right. After Jacob's funeral, when the brothers stood before Joseph, he absolutely had them dead to rights. He had the power, he had the influence, he was second in the kingdom only to the Pharaoh. He could have done anything he wanted to them, up to and including putting them all to the sword. But he didn't. He stayed his hand. Joseph understood that it wasn't his place to exact vengeance. Instead, he mended that relationship that he had with his brethren, and he supported them for the rest of his days. 
Now, we can't put ourselves properly in the place of God, but God does have a very special place for us. A place where we can spend the rest of eternity with the brethren, being with and worshiping God. A place with a heavenly host where mansions have been prepared for us with no more suffering and no more sorrow. Through the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the offer is extended to each of us. Christ died so that we might have hope for salvation in the life to come. Through understanding, confession, and baptism, we can be raised to walk in the newness of life with the hope of that wonderful future in our hearts as we live and work in fellowship with our brethren towards that great day. We implore you not to wait any longer. Tomorrow is by no means guaranteed for any of us. If you strayed from the path and you need the prayers and support of your brethren, let us help lift you up. Together we gain from strength and support of each other. None of us should have to face the challenges of this life alone. None of us should. In either case, if we can help you find your way to the special place God has prepared for you, please come forward as we stand and sing.